today we're going to start this Advent season. And, and let me just say for those of you that are, are maybe new to the church or new to celebrating this season with you, or maybe you're not even familiar with Advent. Let me tell you, I was not familiar with the celebration of Advent. I didn't grow up in a church tradition that, that uh, followed a liturgical calendar. And so, you know, Christmas obviously is a big deal for any people of God, any Christian or pretty much any American for the most part. But Advent was not something that we did. Now, you'll see we have up here an Advent wreath. And this is our fifth year as a church of making this a part of our rhythm. And I'm going to tell you why I like it. Uh, yeah, some people, you're like, yes, yes, I grew up with it. Thank you, Pastor, for bringing the Pentecostals on board. But here's why I like the celebration of Advent. Because the word Advent, it comes from the Latin word Adventus. It means coming. It's a season of expectation. And it's so much more than just a celebration on December 25th. But this whole season is a time where we, we look forward to the celebration of Christ's first coming, but, but his second coming is closely tied to that. It's a season of expectation for the fact that the one who came is coming again. Amen? And so what we do is every Sunday of the Advent season leading up to Christmas is we light one of the candles on the Advent wreath. Now, if you're familiar with the Advent calendar, that's a whole different thing. Pentecostals have always been about the calendar because we like sweets, right? Like, we've all, that's, that's, we've all about the calendar. But this is the wreath. This is different. We don't eat this. We light a candle. Every Sunday of the Advent season, one for hope, one for uh, love, one for joy, and one for peace. And then in all four of our candlelit Christmas Eve services on December 24th, we're going to light the center candle as well. That's the Christ candle as we commemorate the coming of the Lord together. So today we're going to begin this season of celebration by lighting the candle of hope. And how fitting that on the first Sunday of the Christmas season, right after Black Friday, we get to light a candle of hope. How many of you know this is a season of hopes? I mean, from everything from a Red Ryder BB gun to a diamond ring to world peace. Like, we want it all, right? It's a season of, of hopes. And let me just encourage you as we get ready to, to light this candle that the hope that we are igniting today in our hearts is not wishful thinking. It's not blind optimism. Optimism is psychological. Hope is theological. There's a difference. Optimism just sees the, the good in anything and everything. Best case scenario, even when there's not one. Hope does a better thing. Hope acknowledges the reality and still chooses to believe. That's what hope does. So if your hope is not any deeper than your expectations, then what happens when your expectations don't get met? The Bible tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick. So when our expectations aren't met, we need something a little bit deeper. And so today we're going to light this candle of hope. And I want to encourage you today, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're feeling in this season, we have a hope that is available for us in Christ Jesus. It's not based on our wants, it's based on his word. It's not based on our preferences, it's based on his promises. Not based on what I'm sensing, it's based on what God is saying. So today as we get ready to jump into this first message in this series, I want to just encourage you to allow the hope that we have, not in our circumstances or in whatever season we might be in, but the hope that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 
to be built up in your heart and your life. Let's pray right now before we get into the word. Father, thank you so much that on this first Sunday of Advent, Lord, we can lean in with hearts full of expectation, full of hope. Not based on what we've seen in past years or even what we're feeling or hoping for today in the natural, but Lord, based on the promises, on the precepts that we get, we're given in your word. God, thank you today that you are here to meet with us in the pages of scripture and in the power of your spirit. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Behold, I want to begin a new sermon series. I want to start today and for the rest of this Christmas season with a message I'm calling Behold. Now, that's not a word we use a lot today. I mean, let's be honest. If you're at like Turkey Hill getting gas afterwards and somebody says behold to you, you're going to be looking around for like Ebenezer Scrooge or something. You're like, well, that's not a word we use. But in the old English translations of scripture, it's full. In fact, the King James Bible has the word behold 1,298 times. Behold. Behold, behold. It's a Greek word, that Edo, which actually means be sure to see. Behold. Be sure to see. Or it can be translated to understand or to know, to realize. In, in our common vernacular, we might just say, look. Like, don't miss this. It's funny, when I watch TV with my family, they get annoyed. Because, you know, it's probably this way in your house, too. Everybody's got, like, their own devices, and everybody's multitasking. But when I'm watching a show with somebody, I want everybody to appreciate. This happened just, just yesterday, I think. I was watching some, one of those renovation shows where, like, they flip a house in 24 hours. And I always do this. I always go, hey, check this out. Check this out. And everybody looks up, and, they see, and then they look away. And they're like, hey, look, look at this. Look at this. And they, they look again. And I drive them crazy, but I just, I, I, want, them, I want them to see what I'm seeing. I want, I, I'm still old school. I want family entertainment. You know what I'm talking about? So don't tell them I said this, but this, this Christmas, I've just decided I'm changing it up. Now I'm just going to say, behold. 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 And, and that's what they're doing in Scripture. They're saying, hey, there's a new scene. There's a new season. There's a change of pace. That word behold was a word that was used as a tool in Hebrew language to just kind of pick up the narrative of the language, to kind of indicate that, that there's another detail that we don't want you to miss. And so here's my heart's desire in the Advent season, that you would behold that this is a new season, that, that God is doing something new that you don't want to miss, that you want to see what Christ is up to in this season. I want Jesus to grab our attention in a fresh and in a powerful way. Over the next several weeks, we're going to behold the Son of God. We're going to behold the babe in the manger. We're going to behold the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus is all of those things and a whole lot more. But today, I want to begin the series by inviting you to behold the King. I want to behold the King today. Most of us know Jesus is King but we don't usually say that. We don't talk to him as King Jesus. Or actually, we probably do and just don't realize it. See, a lot of people don't know that, that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Did you know that? Like, in, in the era that Jesus lived in the first century, they didn't have last names. Like you just defined somebody by their first name and then by their dad's name or by the, their hometown. In fact, I'll show you an example of this in Scripture. In John 1.45, uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, 
We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus. Jesus who? Of Nazareth. Which Jesus from Nazareth? The son of Joseph. Like, that's how they described who a person was. There was no last name. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying his last name. Christ is a title that was given to Jesus. It describes who he is. The same way yesterday I got to, for the first time, say Mr. and Mrs. Fenstermaker. It it was a title. And and so we say doctor, so-and-so. It's it's a title. Or pastor, it's a title. And the word Christ is... What's interesting about the word Christ is it's not a translation of the Greek word. It's a transliteration. In other words, sometimes when they would go to translate a word, instead of translating it, they would just make up a new word that sounded like the original word, and and that would be the new word. So in Greek, it's Christos. And so they just made up a new word, Christ. They, They do that actually with several words, like the word baptismo. It is a word that means to submerge or to put under. And so when they went to translate baptismo, they decided, well, let's just transliterate it. And they just made a new word, baptism. So when we baptize people, we put them under the water. Uh, they, they did that with a, another Anglo-Saxon word, Godspell. Godspell means good news. So when they went to translate Godspell, they just made up a new word, gospel. The gospel is the good news. So Christos means the anointed one. And when you read that same word in the Hebrew language, it's Messiah. So did you know whenever you say Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, you're essentially saying the same thing. You're saying he's the anointed one. And all throughout scripture, when someone was the anointed one, they, they would, it was like they, a new king would be anointed. It was a Symbol of authority, of royalty. We see David anointed in 1 Samuel 16. We see Solomon anointed as the king. And so, in essence, every time we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the anointed king. That's what we're saying. Every time we pray to Jesus Christ, we are praying to Jesus the anointed king. King. Every time we lift our voice in worship to Christ the King, we are lifting our voice to the anointed King Jesus. And when you read scripture about the coming of a Savior, of a Christ, of a Messiah, we're reading about the coming of a King. It, it, it's, it's amazing. And, and let me just say, I, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. You say, well, that's nothing new, Pastor. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. Uh, if, you don't, if you didn't come for the word of God, let me just tell you, you're not going to enjoy this message. I, now, now, you might not enjoy it because I just don't preach it well. That's always, that's always a possibility. That's definitely a real possibility. But if you don't like scripture, then there's not a chance you're going to like this message because I had so much fun preparing it. I just began to meditate on so many pictures from Genesis to Revelation of Jesus as a king. And I just want to kind of do a walk through the word with you today about some of these pictures because here's what I want you to know this first Sunday of Advent. When people were anticipating the coming of the Lord, they were looking for a king. And it's no wonder they were because over and over again, most of the prophecies of the coming of Jesus were prophecies about the coming of a king. Let's go to Genesis, all the way back, Genesis chapter 49, way back before Israel was a nation and it was just one man named Jacob. God wrestled with him and changed his name to Israel. 
in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's blessing his 12 sons, who would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gets to his son Judah, and he says this in Genesis 49, 10 and 11. And by the way, I, I'm going to be preaching this series out of the New King James Version. It's a little different than what I usually read out of, but that's because some of the newer translations got rid of the word behold. And I don't appreciate that. They could have at least said, watch this. I would have been okay with that, but they just skipped, they skipped it, so it's back. Here's what Jacob said. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. That's one of those cool names of God we don't talk about very often, Shiloh. Until and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Here's Jacob, Old Testament, prophesying. Verse 11, he says, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So way back in Genesis 49, Jacob's prophesying about a coming leader with a scepter in his hand, and he talks about him riding on a donkey. Even when they were in the wilderness, go to, go to Numbers chapter 24. This was before Israel even had a land to call their own. We talked a lot this year about the wilderness in our life groups right now. We're talking about going through the wilderness. And, and, and the children of Israel, they're wandering through the wilderness. They're down in the valley. And there's a prophet named Balaam who's standing up on a hillside and he's looking down at them. He's sent there to curse them, but he said, I can only say what God says about them. And so he begins to prophesy blessing over God's people. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So here he is. They're in the wilderness. They haven't even gotten their own land or their own borders. And already someone is prophesying about a leader. He's not here now, but he's coming. And he's got a scepter in his hand. Now, now go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 because you see... David gets the direct covenant promise from God. David is now the king in Israel. He's now the leader of God's people. And, and in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And then go over to Isaiah chapter 9, because Isaiah picks up the promise we're going to skip over Psalms. There's a whole bunch of Psalms about the king coming and ruling and reigning. Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 111. But Isaiah picks up the promise that God gave to David that his kingdom would never end. And then Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You're probably going to get a Christmas card this year with that verse on it. How many of you are familiar with that verse at Christmas time? We often think about the child born, the son given, and we picture the babe in the manger. But look at the emphasis of this prophecy. This child to be born, this son to be given is a king. Look at the next verse. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
So he's coming and he's going to rule on a throne and the kingdom will never end. That's the hope of the son given, the child born. And then go, go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel gets a revelation that, that's even more well-known and loved by the Jews than the one that Isaiah got. In fact, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 is a word that every Jew would have been familiar with in the time of Christ. Every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every teacher and scribe of the law, they would have had this verse memorized. Daniel 7, verse 13, here's, here's the prophecy. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of Heaven. Now that's really important, so kind of log that away in your mind. This image of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's another great name for God we don't, we don't hear too often. The Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So here's the hope for all of Israel through the prophets and through the, the old covenant. They're, they're looking for one, a son of man who will come in the clouds. They're looking for one whose kingdom will never be destroyed. That's why when Jesus was talking about the last days in Matthew chapter 24, and he's communicating to him what it's going to be like at the, the coming of the Lord in the last days. Jesus says, then this sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when, when they see this. What are they going to see? The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's why when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and all the, the, the high priests, the chief priests, the, the scholars, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they all come together. They're trying to find a way that they can uh, justify crucifying Jesus. And so they, they get these two false witnesses to, to raise an accusation, but they don't get their story straight. And, and, and it has to be established in the mouth of two witnesses. And so, so then the, the high priest comes back to Jesus a second time. This story is in Mark 14. And he comes back to him and he's a second time. And up to this moment, Jesus has not opened his mouth. He's been silent before his accusers. And then the high priest asks him for the second time, Are you the Messiah? Remember that word Messiah means Christ. It means anointed king. That's what we need to know tonight. Are you the king? And in Mark 14, verse 62, it says, I am. Two words is all it took. I am. But then Jesus explains, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when they heard him say that, when they heard Jesus say, Daniel 7 is about me. Look at what the next verse says. The high priest tore his clothes. What further need do we have of witnesses? You heard what he said. What do you think? And then it says they all condemned him as worthy of death. Up to that point, it was a divided council. But when Jesus said, 
I'm the king. All of a sudden, it was unanimous. That's all they needed for everyone to be in agreement that the only appropriate thing to do with this teacher, this rabbi, this miracle worker is crucifixion. They all agreed that he should be condemned to death. You know, it's amazing. People will let Jesus be a lot of things before they'll let him be king. And isn't that true today? There's a lot of people that, that appreciate the, the, the squiggly, cuddly baby in a manger. Like, we're all about that. I guarantee it. Every year it's true. Barring some Arctic blizzard, Christmas Eve will be the fullest service of the year. Last year we had over 600 people here for Christmas Eve. People love the idea of, of a baby. That's safe. That's, that's cute. That's nice. That's endearing. People like the idea of a miracle worker. Do something fantastic. Do something amazing. People love a good moral teacher. We're all about that. And you'll let Jesus live alongside you, but when he says, I am. Behold, the king. Then they agreed. We got to put Jesus in his place. Zechariah spoke of this moment. The prophet Zechariah spoke at a time when the people of God were in exile again. So they had come out of uh, Egypt. They got to their promised land. They built the house of the Lord. They were thriving as their own government. They had their own king, but they turned away from God. Now they're in exile again, and God raises up a voice like Zechariah to speak and to give them hope in an uncertain time. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a, a foal of a donkey. So he picks up on what Jacob said in Genesis 49, this idea that this king is coming. Behold, your king is coming, and he's riding on a donkey. That's why the people got so excited when Jesus rolled into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the colt of a donkey. It was more than just some kind of symbol that he was a humble servant leader. He didn't come in on a big stallion. It had a whole lot more to do with the fact that when they saw Jesus coming in on a donkey's colt, what Zechariah had said could possibly be fulfilled in this moment. What Jacob had said in Genesis 49 could be fulfilled in this moment. And so the people took palm branches and they began to wave them and they shouted, Hosanna, which means save now. In other words, like, let this be the moment. We've been waiting all these years. Let this be the time that a king comes and he has a dominion that lasts forever, that he comes with a scepter in his hand, that he overthrows our Roman oppressors. Let this be the moment we're looking for a king. And then God spoke through the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and he said to the people, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth and from, are from of old, from everlasting. I love that phrase. It's good to know that Jesus will meet you here and now, but he doesn't come from here and now. He comes from everlasting to everlasting. 
And, and it was this verse out of Micah, this prophecy that revealed to Herod that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And often we read in this season of the year the story in Matthew chapter 2. It says wise men came from the east. They were following the star. They had come to worship the Savior. And in Matthew chapter 2, it says when Herod heard about it, he was troubled. Why? Because they, they, weren't, they weren't just coming to a baby shower. They were coming with gifts for a king. So Herod was threatened. Not by a Jewish rabbi. Not, not by an increase in the male population in Bethlehem. He was threatened by the potential of a king who would sit on a throne with a scepter in his hand and his kingdom would never end. That was a threat. And so it says he was troubled. And then in Matthew 2 and verse 4, it says that Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together. And he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. So they opened up the scroll of Micah. And they read from it. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod now has to get to this child. He tells the, the wise men, I want you to go and, and, and worship him like you planned to. And then come back and let me know where he is so I can go and worship him too. The Holy Spirit directed those magi said, no, 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 Herod's, uh, Herod's got an ulterior motive. And so they left back to their hometown a different way. And that's why we have one of the saddest verses in, in all of the Christmas story. It's down in verse 16 of Matthew 2. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem. Some of you are like, man, that is not in my children's Bible. I need, I need, wow. Yeah. He put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time when he had determined from the wise men a, a, a massacre, a genocide in Bethlehem happened. Not because Herod was intimidated that there was going to be some moral guide or some spiritual leader or even someone that had good teaching or lived a sinless life. None of those things threaten earthly kingdoms. But they were looking for a king. And Herod saw the writing on the wall that this could be the king that they prophesied about. And he wanted to end his life early. And then you get into the New Testament and, and of course Jesus is introduced as a king. When the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary to tell her she's going to have a child. We know she's, she's wrestling with the process of how can this be? I, I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. But, but I want you to, to listen to the promise that Gabriel gives her. It's more than just childbearing. In Luke 1.31, the angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So 
when Mary submits herself, she's not just submitting herself to the plan of, of bearing a child as, a, as an unwed teen mom. What she's actually doing is she's submitting herself to the promise that goes all the way back to the beginning of your Bible that there is a king coming. And his kingdom will know no end. When John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, came on the scene, he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then when Jesus began his ministry, he began announcing the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now here's what's amazing to me. All of scripture points to the coming of a king and then finally, he's here, Jesus is on the scene. He's evaded death as a child by, by fleeing to Egypt. And then he comes back home, but he can't go to his home, so he goes to Nazareth. And he grows up there, and then he lives 30 years on the earth before he begins his ministry. And when the day finally comes for Jesus to begin his ministry, he doesn't tell anybody he's the king. Nobody. He... He keeps it concealed on purpose. In fact, there was one moment in Matthew 16 where he asked the disciples, they'd been with him for a while, and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ. In other words, the anointed king, the Messiah. You are the Christ. And, and Jesus commended him for it. He said, you're right. In fact, that confession, Peter, is the thing that I'm going to build the whole church on. And not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against the church that I'm building on this revelation that you have today, that I am the Christ. But then in verse 20 of Matthew 16, it says he commanded them. Now, don't tell anybody. That's what he said. Don't tell anybody. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't done. Because he still had a message to preach. He had miracles to do. He had a work to do. And Jesus knows what we know. He knows that a lot of people will let him be a lot of things before they'll let him be king. And you can stay and you can do your ministry and you can preach your gospel and you can have your followers. Just don't go around saying, I am. And so Jesus waited until the last week of his life before the cross. Matthew 21. Palm Sunday, he finally acknowledges the hopes, the prophecies that they're about me. He lets the people sing their song and wave their palm branches and, and get all excited about this possibility that, that Jesus is the coming king, and he's literally coming into the city of Jerusalem. It, it's finally time, and, and here's the thing. This is what it's so, why it's so important. To declare Jesus as king means that you have to serve an eviction notice on anything and anyone else that has authority in your heart. Like, immediately, something has to change. Every person, every idea, every priority, everyone, everything has to come down a peg when you say, Jesus is king. Everything moves after that. So my challenge for you on this first Sunday of Advent is look at your life right now. Look at your priorities. Look at your passions. Look at your pursuits. Look at the people in your life. And then behold the king. Behold the king. Ask yourself this question. Is Jesus my king? Easy to embrace him as a Promised son. 
easy to admire him conceived of the virgin or as a good moral teacher or as an influencer or even as someone that lived a sinless life or someone that did miracles. Even maybe you want to say he's the one that laid down his life as Savior. But the problem is when you only come to Jesus as Savior, you only come to him out of your needs. When you come to Jesus as King, everything submits and is surrendered to his Lordship. That's the difference. He's not just the Savior He's the king. He purchased your salvation 2,000 years ago at Calvary, and we can spend the rest of our days giving him thanks for that. But listen, he's going to spend the rest of your eternity being your king, ruling and reigning in righteousness. It's hard. The challenge of today is it's hard to articulate what it really means for Jesus to be the king. And I so appreciate the work of Dr. S.M. Lockridge, he was a pastor in San Diego, California, back from 1953 to 1993. He went home to be with the Lord in the year 2000. But S.M. Lockridge became famous for a portion of a, a sermon he preached trying to communicate that Jesus is his king. So what I want to do here at, at the end of this message is I just want you to hear it in his voice. I want you to hear Dr. Lockridge communicate the king. Now before we play the video, let me tell you about this screen because it is football season and I know some of you talk to your screens. I want you to know this is a screen you can talk to. You can say amen. You can say oh my. You can say yay God. But I want you to listen to Dr. Lockridge articulate what it means to have Jesus be our king. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know it? <laughs> my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. 
and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Come on. That's my king. Do you know him? Do you know him? Come on, stand to your feet with us today. I want this worship team to begin to just sing this chorus out loud. And today, if you're here in this place and you know Jesus, you like Jesus, maybe you love Jesus, but you need to answer the question, is he my king? If every area of your life, every passion, pursuit, and person is not submitted to the kingship of Jesus, then this needs to be a moment of surrender for you. And I want to invite you on this first Sunday of the Advent season to just lift your hands right where you're standing to the Lord. And say, Jesus, I surrender. I lay my life down. Jesus, you are my king. Come on, as they sing this, just take a moment.